Welcome. This is the Decker for Real podcast, our monthly discussion of current issues and trends in commercial real estate finance. We aim to bring market commentary about development and trends, updates you can use, and hopefully a little bit of banter along the way. I'm one of the co-hosts for today's episode, John Gaynor, a counsel based in Deckert's Philadelphia office. Hi, I'm Ellis Smith, a partner based in Deckert's Charlotte office. Our normal third co-host, Sam Gilbert, is on location in Boston closing deals, which is a great sign for the market, so we're happy for that, but it's just Ella and I today. But we'll be talking to Deckard's own John Ludwig Egan on the SEC's conflict of interest rule during our interview. But before that, we're trying out a new format for the podcast. In our new 411 segment, we'll talk about current issues bubbling around in the commercial real estate finance market. And this month, we'll talk about that the Cayman Islands might be able to come off the gray list and what that means for securitizations and a change in swaps used in pricing fixed rate CMBS. But first, let's get for real. Uh, this is an icebreaker to kind of get the creative juices flowing. This month, Ella, what's your favorite travel destination? I'll go first. Lately, my family and I have been doing national parks. Uh, in the spring, we did Shenandoah, and at the end of the summer, we're looking at doing Acadia. Oh, wow. Are you, like, camping in a tent? No. We get, like, a relatively nice Airbnb. When we did Shenandoah, it was this, like, farm with ponies and chickens and fresh eggs. It was really cool. Oh, wow. Farming on vacation. That sounds really cool. Not for me, but I appreciate your active lifestyle and getting back to nature with the family. Um, Look, I do normal vacations. I was just at the Jersey Shore, you know, like the boardwalk and rides and stuff. I have young kids. It's fun. Oh, trust me. I understand that. That explains my favorite vacation destination, which is a giant cruise ship. Not like the fancy chartered yacht. Well, at least not yet. Once the podcast takes off, we'll see. But for now, a giant cruise ship with like water slides and go-kart racing on top, and most importantly, a kids club at the bottom. I really like it because you can travel to multiple tropical destinations in one week. You can soak up the sun and the local culture, and my kids can still eat chicken nuggets at every meal. Wait, I could have been having chicken nuggets. I mean, my kids could have been having chicken nuggets at every meal. Yeah, I mean, the farm route, you might be doing it wrong here. You could be on a big cruise ship eating mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and gelato every day. That or my Airbnb host would get really upset when he comes back to his chicken coop. (laughs) Where did my chickens go? They were delicious. (laughs) So I feel like that was real enough. Why don't we turn into our next segment? We're calling it the 411. This is where we're talking about current issues trending. So Ella, I think you had the first one. Yes. Well, I'm excited to get back to the topic of tropical cruise destinations. So let's talk for a minute about the Cayman Islands, which got some good news recently. So as a bit of history, most CRE CLOs and actually corporate CLOs use the Caymans to form their issuer entities for tax reasons, which I'll explain on a very high level. So CRE CLOs are generally structured using a QRS or Qualified REIT subsidiary to protect from entity-level taxation. This taxation would subject the issuer to a layer of corporate tax on top of the tax paid by investors, and that could dramatically reduce the returns on the CRE CLO bonds. However, even using this QRS structure, there is still a risk that the parent REIT could fall out of compliance with the REIT rules, or as we call it, it could de-REIT, and thus it would lose its tax exemption. So to offer another layer of added protection, when issuers are formed in the Cayman Islands, if there were to be a de-REIT, 
Then the issuer could adopt new guidelines on managing their collateral so that it could be treated as a foreign corporation that is not engaged in a U.S. trader business and therefore not subject to entity-level taxation. So that's just the history on why CRE CLO issuers were formed in the Caymans. Didn't they stop being formed in the Caymans recently? What happened in February 2021? Well, good question, John. February 2021, an international watchdog entity called the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, put the Caymans on their increased monitoring list, which is usually referred to as its gray list. That triggered the inclusion of the Caymans on the EU's AML, or anti-money laundering list, as a high-risk country. And then, due to being on the EU AML list, we could no longer use the Caymans for issuer formation on these securitizations. So since then, issuers have had to decide to either use another foreign jurisdiction, like Bermuda or Jersey, and this would be the Jersey Islands north of France, not the Jersey Shore where John likes to vacation, or they could determine that the risk of de-reading is not substantial enough, and they could just form the issuer in Delaware as a U.S. issuer. Unless the deal was fully offshore and actually required a foreign jurisdiction, most issuers did decide to just use a U.S. entity and take on that additional risk of de-reading. We're really getting in the tax weeds here. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) I just know enough tax law to be dangerous, so you should stop me now before I go any further. Okay, so then what happened? Okay, so what happened? June 23rd, we got news that the Caymans is now eligible for removal from the FATF's gray list, which is great news for the Caymans and for our clients who want to avoid the risk of dereading. So the FATF confirmed that the Caymans have satisfied all 63 of the recommended actions, and after they conduct an on-site investigation, the Cayman Island will be eligible for removal from the gray list at the FATF's October meeting. And this, of course, wouldn't fully solve the issue because it's the EU AML listing that's really causing problems for the Caymans. But it is expected that once the Caymans is removed from the gray list, that should also trigger its removal from the EU AML list, which is expected to follow relatively shortly after the FATF delisting. So we'll have to wait until October to see how this pans out, but it does appear that the Caymans is on a positive trajectory. You know, assume it's brought off the gray list in October and then off the EU's AML list after that. What do you think is going to happen after that? Well, there are some additional requirements and implications for using a jurisdiction other than the Caymans. So I think if the Caymans is able to be used, people will go back to the Caymans rather than trying to use Bermuda or Jersey. For those issuers, though, that just went to a Delaware entity and took on the risk, I think they really have to assess that risk. And is it worth it to go back to using a Cayman's issuer, or do they want to take on that risk of the possible DREIT? Who do we have to thank for tuning us in on this uh, breaking news story? Oh, well, I'd actually love to thank Michael O'Connor, a partner at Conyers, who took the time to hash out the Caymans update with me, as well as the law firms Walkers and Maples for sending some very helpful Caymans updates to our team. That's great. And we'll obviously continue to track this issue as it evolves and you know, look forward to any updates on that stuff. My 411 this month is about a change in how issuers are pricing fixed rate CMBS. They're using treasuries now instead of SOFR swaps. Hat tip to the Commercial Mortgage Alert who published something about this about a week ago at the time we're recording this. I would be remiss if I didn't note that 
today is June 30th, LIBOR's last day. You know, these deals originally priced off of LIBOR swaps. And then when everybody was changing things over in 2021, 2022, there was an initial controversy over this very fact. And issuers wanted to use SOFR swaps and investors and other markets use treasury swaps. And one of the markets that I cover, you know, SFR started on treasury swaps. So CMBS was really sticking out as a sore thumb. But now we've seen for a while they were pricing fixed rate CMBS off of SOFR swaps. Now they're moving it back over to treasury swaps, which lines up with what other major markets like uh, corporate CLOs have been doing. Barclays was the first to test this approach, and recently a number of other conduits and Freddie Mac transactions have all used treasuries. Looking at the deals that have priced in the last couple of days, it looks like the trend is continuing. The problem with this change from an originator of mortgage loan perspective is that they're still looking at their risk on a SOFR basis, and they hedge the risk of these loans using SOFR until they land in the conduit deal. And so that introduces a little bit of basis risk where the originator of the loan could be left out to dry if there's a big market move between when the loans originated and when it actually lands in the conduit deal. To be determined whether that creates any kind of real systematic risk or any real systematic loss, and to be determined if originators of these loans are able to move to more treasury hedges in the future. Um, but my overall view is it's not going to do much to help change things very much, kind of like a technical change uh, and not necessarily like a giant market mover. But it's like indirectly related to LIBOR, so I had to talk about it. Oh, God, John, this is not the LIBOR cast, but we should note that the day we're recording this is the last day of LIBOR. Pour one out for my buddy LIBOR. Uh, he had a terrible run that nobody liked, and a lot of people probably can't wait to see him go. LIBOR is dead. Long live term sofer. All right. Why don't we move into our interview portion? Today, we are delighted to have John Ludwig Eakin with us. He is an associate in Deckard's global finance practice. John focuses practice on CRE CLOs, CMBS, SFR, and other kind of securitization products. John also frequently drafts and drives Deckard on points, and he recently did one on the conflicts of interest rule, which he'll be talking about today. You can find a link to that on point in the show notes to this episode. John, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. You know, guys, there's just a couple too many Johns on this call. For the rest of the call, I'm going to refer to John Gaynor <laughs> as Gaynor and John Ludwig Egan as John. So feel free to use that as well, John Ludwig Egan. Call him Gaynor. He loves it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. So, John, before we get into the substance, you have to be for real with us, too. So what's your favorite travel destination? Okay. So I live in upstate New York, and there's this town called Skinny Atlas about an hour away. It's actually where I proposed to my wife. Um, it's a cute little B&B town. Uh, it's got a gorgeous lake in the middle and a really laid-back vibe. And there are great restaurants, although I cannot personally vouch for their cruise ship uh, chicken nuggets. That's my spot. There's no way you could compare to cruise ship chicken nuggets, so you shouldn't try with your little B&B town in upstate New York. No. Is it Skinny Atlas, like skinny, like thin Atlas? So that's how it's pronounced. I could not honestly tell you how it's spelled. Um, every time I try, I get it wrong. Um, but it's gorgeous and highly recommended. Okay. 
Well, there is a musician called Skinny Atlas. So if you Google it, you're probably not going to find the town that John's speaking of. <laughs> it's a mystery that you'll have to solve on your own. So, John, let's just jump right in. Let's talk about the SEC's proposed Rule 192. Let's start with the history. Where did this rule come from? Sure. So first, we have to take it back to 2008. After the global financial crisis, uh, the Senate was tasked with doing a postmortem to try to figure out what happened. They took a lot of testimony. They subpoenaed a lot of documents. Uh, and they published a report about the root causes of the crisis. And one of the things they focused on were securitizations that were designed to fail. The evidence showed that uh, broker-dealers and other structurers would create entire securitization transactions for the sole purpose of shorting them. Or, you know, they would let third parties choose the collateral and then come in and short the deal. And since they planned to be short, it incentivized them to actually design the securitizations to fail at the expense of long investors and fail they did. You know, one senator likened the practice to selling someone a car with no brakes and then getting a life insurance policy on the driver. So in response, Section 621 was added to Dodd-Frank and it prohibited certain parties from entering into transactions that would constitute a material conflict of interest with a securitization for a one-year period. Dodd-Frank's been around for a long time, though, John. Why is this news now? Great question. So, you know, Dodd-Frank said you, uh, SEC, have to issue rules implementing this uh, statute in 270 days. About a year went by. They tried. They issued a proposal, uh, extended the comment period a couple of times. But it kind of died on the vine. Uh, and, you know, the rulemaking on this issue has been dormant for about 12 years until January when they surprised the industry uh, with a new proposed Rule 192. Well, that sounds like it's a story. What happened when the proposed rule suddenly reappeared after being dormant for, what, 12 years? Yeah, so it caught everyone by surprise. Uh, it was a real scramble to you know, get ourselves up to speed. And we needed to get up to speed because our clients needed to get up to speed. We knew that it was an important development and it really mattered to the industry. Uh, and the comment deadline the SEC set was so tight. You know, they announced the rule in, I think, January 25th, and they wanted comments by March 27. Uh, so that time was really of the essence. But it was just a rule. I mean, what was it, a couple sentences? Uh, the, the rule was not that long. The proposal was a little lengthier, so it definitely took some brain damage to try to figure out and digest. But what we did was, you know, we got together kind of a brain trust from various different product lines and backgrounds, including our very own Matt Armstrong, a producer of the podcast, uh, to analyze the proposal, put together a client alert. And that involved several consecutive late nights for a whole lot of people. But we got it published, and actually it has just been repurposed for an article that came out in The Investment Lawyer. Uh, so I'm personally very proud of how the Deckard team came together on this. We really put together some thoughtful analysis on an important issue, on a really short timeline. All right, enough of a hard sell. <laughs> I'm curious, though, what's in the rule and why was it so important? And substantively, why are we paying so much attention to it? Sure. So at a high level, the proposed rule says if you're a securitization participant, you can't enter into a conflicted transaction for a year after the securitization closes. A conflicted transaction is a short sale, credit default swap, 
for this catch-all third category of transactions uh, to the extent that investors would consider it material. And the rule makes exceptions for, for three things, for risk-mitigating hedging activities, transactions in support of liquidity commitments, and bona fide market-making. As to why the rule is important, you know, I could write a treatise on this question, but since this is a podcast, I will stick to a couple of the big ones. The first is the issue of who the rule applies to in the first place. So the rule applies to sponsors, underwriters, initial purchasers, placement agents of a securitization, and all of their affiliates or subsidiaries. Uh, and what the proposed rule means by sponsor is a lot broader than what we might be familiar with in other contexts like Reg AB or risk retention. Uh, so it includes the familiar definition, someone who organizes and initiates a securitization by transferring assets to an issuer, but it also includes two new categories of people. Uh, the first is anyone who directs or causes the direction of the structure, design, or assembly of a securitization or the asset pool, and also to anyone with a contractual right to do so. So a big question in our industry is whether B buyers would now be considered sponsors. Um, in the proposal, the SEC indicated that it did not intend to capture long investors in that definition, as long as they merely express their preference about what they want the securitization to look like. But a B buyer is more involved in deal structuring and an asset pool selection than a normal investor might be. So there's been a lot of discussion about whether what a B buyer does uh, crosses the line and what, what relief might be necessary for them. I feel like this is a bit of a loaded question, but are there any specific provisions of proposed rule 192 that would be problematic for the securitization markets? Yeah, the big one is the sponsor definition, the B buyer point in particular, but there's also this ministerial exception to the definition of sponsor. And that scopes out parties that perform only routine, administrative, ministerial acts for the securitization, so they're protected from having to be considered a sponsor. Uh, but there are two big issues with this. The first is that it only scopes out service providers who perform ministerial acts relating to the structure, design, assembly of the securitization or the asset pool. But as we all know, a securitization is a living, breathing thing that has a long life after the deal closes. And there are a lot of parties involved in actually operating the deal that might not necessarily fall under that category. In particular, I think the concern is around servicers and special servicers. You know, we'll talk a, a little bit more about this in detail down the line, but, you know, special servicers make their money from working out liquidating distressed assets and investors might lose money on those distressed assets. So there's a lot of concern about, you know, making sure we give service providers enough latitude to be able to comfortably do what they're hired to do. Are there any types of transactions that would be prohibited under Rule 192 that we are currently doing now? Yeah, so that's another really big issue. In the proposing release, the SEC said that it only intended to prohibit that universe of transactions that would be considered a bet against the securitization. So think back to the senator's analogy of taking out a life insurance policy on the driver without brakes. But folks are worried about the possibility that the language goes beyond that and might encroach on transactions that we would all think of as, you know, innocuous and, and pretty routine. One in particular that's especially important to the CMBS market has to do with consent and consultation rights. 
So bee buyers, for example, have all sorts of consent and consultation rights under the CMBS documents with respect to you know, decisions about the collateral. And usually the bee buyer is entitled to exercise those rights however it wants, because they're at the bottom of the stack and they have the most skin in the game. But if the bee buyer turns out to be a sponsor and subject to the rule, then the bee buyer now has to police its conduct in a way that it never really had to before. And kind of destroys the alignment that makes a bee buyer useful to a deal, right? Yeah, exactly. Bee buyers are really there to speak for the deal. We were, you know, we rely on them and investors, senior investors rely on them to stand in for their interests. Um, and this rule kind of creates a, a dichotomy between the issues of the senior investors and the junior investors. So what about credit risk transfer deals? Aren't they also kind of indirectly hit by this too, or even directly hit by this too? Yeah. So that's a big topic of concern. Um, there is competing language in the proposal that in some places suggests that credit risk transfer deals are okay. Some language that suggests that it's not some language that suggests it's okay only under some circumstances. So we need more clarity on that point because CRT deals are really a critical tool for banks uh, and GSEs to manage their capital, especially in you know market conditions such as the ones we currently live in. So the SEC brought forward this proposed Rule 192. What was the industry response and how did we participate? So it definitely took some time for everyone, you know, myself included, to get our collective heads around what the proposal was and what it was trying to do. Um, but folks came together in all sorts of ways, uh, especially the trades were very active in working with their constituencies to identify, you know, areas of concern, try to brainstorm how to address them with the SEC. And again, I can't overemphasize enough, this comment deadline was two months, which for a major surprise rulemaking is really no time at all. So it was a busy time. And then once March 27th rolled around, everybody submitted their comment letters at once. We helped uh, one major trade organization draft and submit their comment and worked in a somewhat less formal capacity with the others. Krebsy in particular submitted an excellent comment letter about the potential impact on the commercial real estate industry, focused mostly on, you know, B-buyers, special servicers, uh, and operation and management of the securitization after it closes. But because of the tight deadline, a number of trades just sent in a letter saying, look, we don't have enough time to do this right. Here's what we've got. And there is more on the way. So the comments are continuing to roll in, you know, as we speak. So what is the current status then of the SEC's proposed Rule 192? So the SEC is considering the comments. Um, they're taking meetings with interested parties. And there are even some members of Congress who have been interested in the issue and have uh, been you know, sending letters to the SEC and discussing. All indications are that the SEC hopes to finalize the rule about spring 2024. Uh, so we'll see what happens. So, John, it seems like this is moving a little slower than first expected. Has there been any change in the SEC's tone on this issue? Yeah, you know, some of the informal feedback from the trades has really been that the SEC is starting to kind of get it about how this rule might have a reach beyond what they intended and that it might take a little honing to really get this right. I do think they have put a pause on things. Uh, they're going to finalize it next year if I were a betting man. Uh, but I do think they are taking a harder look at the proposal. So if you had a crystal ball based on everything we have in front of us today, what do you think the SEC will change in the final rule, if anything? 
a lot of commenters raised a lot of really fundamental philosophical criticisms about the rule and how the FCC approached the rulemaking. You know, for example, you shouldn't be deemed to violate the rule unless you intentionally design a securitization to fail. Or you should be protected from what your affiliates do or what other members of your firm do if you're separated by information firewalls. I think there are a lot of very good and interesting points there, but I would be surprised if the SEC fundamentally changed its vision of what they want this rule to look like. So I'm not holding my breath for an intent standard or a firewall carve-out or anything else that really cuts against the SEC's fundamental philosophy for this rule. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't think the SEC wants to kill the securitization markets. And I think they do understand that the proposed rule probably reaches a lot farther than they wanted it to. Remember, the SEC said in their proposal they were trying to prohibit only those transactions that function as a bet against the securitization. So I think they're going to make it clear that things like interest rate hedging and other normal course transactions are fine. I think they're also going to want to protect service providers like special servicers from the state of regulatory uncertainty. Uh, and I think they're going to want to protect long investors like B buyers from having to comply with the rule because really they're the universe of people that the rule is trying to protect. So long story short, I think the SEC will make some important changes around the edges and leave the bones of the rule intact. Um, but, you know, I've been wrong before and I'll be wrong again. Will you come back to the Decker for Real podcast when the SEC announces its final rule 192 to give us an update? I would love to. This was great. Just don't hold me to any of my predictions. Well, that's great. All right. Our last new segment of the new format is uh, the For Real High Fives. And these are shout outs to people who've inspired us for this month. First, I'd like to thank the team at TREP. Uh, we sat down with Manis, Lonnie, and Haley, and they gave us a lot of pointers on how to improve the reach of our podcast. And they were just really cool people and generous with their time. I have to second that. The TREP team was amazing, and we really enjoyed spending Friday afternoon with them of last week, really learning about how they got to be the podcast that they are today. So thank you guys so much. But I'd also like to thank Norwegian and Disney Cruise Lines for their wonderful chicken nugget selections on Caribbean cruise vacations. Now I'm getting hungry, Ella. Thanks. Send your thoughts on this episode to us at 4realpodcast at Decker.com. That's the number 4realpodcast at Decker.com. One listener commented that they love the camaraderie among the producers on the Krepsi Recap episode. Now I'm worried that we'll have to bring them in front of the mic more often and I'm going to lose my job as a co-host here. Never. You're the star here, Gainer. I don't think that that's true, Ella. We all add a lot to this. But if you like what you heard, give us a five-star rating and leave a review on whatever platform you found this on. Our producers for this episode are Stuart McQueen, Matt Armstrong, and Kate Mylod. This episode was hosted by Ella Smith and me, John Gaynor, with Sam Gilbert working behind the scenes to keep the lights on here. Production support is by Kara Ray, Peggy Hefner, Lisa Caramelango, and Jacob Kimmel. Our editor is Andy Robbins of Audiophile Solutions. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Deckard 4 Real Podcast.